Hello, everybody. Welcome to a Thursday night edition. How's that of Narrative Live? It's good to be with you tonight with Eric Garland, our intelligence analyst and regular co-host. How are you, Eric? I'm well. I'm well. Are you excited? Because we have something really special tonight. We have a bunch of really special things. Yes, but we also have actual presidential candidates on the show. I know. So we've got, you know... This is, this is pretty reaching above our uh, weight or whatever the expression might be. Just to put everyone at ease, it's not me. I'm not running for anything. We might need you to run by the time we get this situation might be so critical. But before that time, I'm going to introduce our first ever presidential candidate on Narrative Live. How are you, John Castro? How are you doing? Good, good. Glad to be here. Thank you. Now, you're not only just a presidential candidate for the Republican Party, is that correct? Correct. Yes. You're also the guy suing Donald Trump for violating the 14th Amendment. Yes. Yes. So you want to give you a little bit of background? Yeah, I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. And then we'll talk about your campaign as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, I was one of the first ones. Uh, I have two law degrees, one of which is uh, from Georgetown University Law Center in Washington, D.C., also a, an alum of Harvard Business School. And yeah, I mean, I was originally a part of the Never Trump camp uh, in the Republican Party all the way going back to 2016. 2018 was the time when I finally decided to do something when uh, Trump was backing Roy Moore in Alabama. And so uh, us and a number of Republicans, notably, you know, with the uh, Lincoln Project, got very heavily involved in the Alabama campaign and, uh, you know, actually turned the state blue. Amazingly, <laughs> so uh, that's when we really realized, you know, how much power we had when we came together. You know, and it wasn't necessarily that we wanted to turn the state blue, but we couldn't allow you know, another tr a Trump sycophant and somebody with a very, very shady background to be elected to the United States Senate. And so um, that kind of uh, sparked my initial, I guess, re-entry back into politics. I used to be in politics when I was a lot younger, but I had kind of stayed out of the fray for a long time, mainly because I was busy building my law firm, building my personal wealth, you know, and things were going really good. And kind of the last thing you want to do as a business person when you spent, you know, so much time and effort and years building a successful business is becoming political and then risking, you know, possibly throwing Everything. that all away, losing yeah. clients as a result yeah. and things like that. So after the January 6th insurrection, I was pretty furious. Um, I'll be honest, I always knew that was going to happen. I absolutely knew it was going to happen. Everybody kept on saying like, like, no, like you're just, you're, you're exaggerating. Uh, he would never do something like that. I mean, you had a feeling in your yeah, gut I mean, that it was going to happen. Not that you actually knew. Oh, just correct. Right. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Let me clarify. These that. days it matters <laughs> in the geo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is not going to end well. And, yeah. Uh, and yeah, I was, I was proven right. And unfortunately, the way that the federal court rules work is um, and people that like challenged uh, various presidential candidates eligibility in the past, you know, most notably the birthers that went after Obama uh, realized time and time again, as their cases were dismissed, that they didn't have standing to challenge his eligibility. That became mm -hmm. the biggest issue. They kept on the courts kept on dismissing it by saying you don't have standing. And that's something that I'm pretty surprised that a lot of attorneys grapple with. They don't understand that concept. And so it's something that with my background and uh, constitutional law, I understood what that meant. And what they were getting at was uh, there was a court case from the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit called Falani. And that case articulated that it has to be a fellow primary presidential candidate that brings the challenge. It can't even be a general candidate. So it can't uh -huh. be, you know, the, the Democratic nominee, because once the parties have ah. selected their nominee, the courts will say that it's now what's called a political question. Right. A political question uh -huh. basically means that 
it's too politically sensitive for us to get involved yeah. now. You know, the, the party's sure. already nominated this person, and so they will allow it to go to the election. So basically, the challenge has to happen early. And so that's why we're gearing up. And uh, pretty much the first primary is going to be in New Hampshire. And the filing to become a candidate opens in early November of 2023. So, you know, pretty much about, um, you know. So you're becoming uh, a candidate just because you want to challenge this ruling or you're becoming a candidate because you want to be president? A little bit of the former, okay. <laughs> more so of the former. I'm not liking uh, your and, policies. And I got to say, I was I enjoyed some of you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're in good, I, did, I, I ran a very serious campaign for yeah. Congress. Yeah. Uh, you know, here in North Texas, you know, yeah. it, it was a very uh, policy focused. You know, I have I have my policy positions. They're very well articulated. Mm. I think as my company has grown, which I, I think I mentioned this in, via email, like we recently just got a valuation of 180 million. So it's getting more and more tempting for me to stay out of politics. Politics, <laughs> just because, like you know, financially things are going really yeah. well. But I want to use the revenue that's generated from my company, that's from this growing success of our, you know, uh, our tax or software company, to finance this. And so, I think this campaign is really to get my name out there. And also, primarily, I just cannot personally stand Trump as long as I'm alive. Yeah, I, I'm going to well, make I'll sure I do everything that. in my power. I don't support you on that. That's for sure. Tell me, yeah. tell, just briefly, what is the 14th Amendment for people who are not? Uh... Yeah, 14th Amendment was post-Civil uh, War. Mm-hmm. Uh, Section 1, you know, of course, you know, frees the, the slaves and creates equal opportunity. And then uh, when it gets to Section 3, that's the part that this is all coming down to. And it basically says that going forward into the future, anybody that took part in any sort of rebellion or insurrection against the United mm-hmm. States of America is ineligible to hold office, which makes mm-hmm. perfect sense, right? You attack our republic, then you can't represent our republic, right? Because you wanted to destroy it. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, logically, you shouldn't be allowed to represent something that you want to destroy. And so uh, they thought, hey, that makes perfect sense, right? We don't want to destroy ourselves from within. And so that's exactly, though, what happened on January 6th. And after January 6th. Yeah, yeah. They, and yeah, and it's continuing to this yeah. day. You know, they're still laying the foundation, you know, uh, American coup 2.0. You know, they're, they're going to give it a second shot. I know that. And, and and everybody that's paying close attention can see that they're still laying the groundwork for that. That's why they're obsessing over all the secretary of state positions. Mm-hmm. So because secretaries of state actually hold a lot of power when it yep. comes to determining eligibility. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing that you're here because you have all this experience in constitutional law. You have knowledge about the Insurrection Act. You have the 14th Amendment. We're going to talk all about that throughout this entire hour because we're going to break down some new stuff that we've been learning uh, as we look through everything that we found out from, you know, we, Eric and I have been doing the single command and control, which is really about was President Trump and his inner circle in charge of that day? Like, were they actually calling the shots on January the 6th? And this is part of the of the of investigation, which looks at the Pentagon and looks at Chris Miller and looks at what happens during those 187 minutes that the National Guard was not called in before they were deployed, at least, to Capitol Hill on January the 6th last year. Eric, anything you want to say before we get going? Yeah, I got some questions. They can run along here, but I want to get like into the weeds on some of the legal stuff. How far have the cases invoking this Insurrection Act against a candidate What's the precedent case law like? What circuit is it in? And I'm assuming it's never reached the Supreme Court level. So your lawsuit here could, you know, if it's it's really novel, this could go a long way towards establishing that. So how far is it? How far is the precedent case law along in defining this? 
Yeah. So the, the case law is unfortunately not as robust as we'd want because it's it's such a uh, unique issue. You know, the last time we dealt with any sort of uh, major insurrection or rebellion against the United States government was the Civil War. Um, my case really breaks it down. It's a lot to get. It was like, a, I want to say close to like 20 pages, the, the lawsuit. So it dissects all of the history of it. Um, there is a, a former Supreme Court justice that spoke on the issue when he presided on the case over Jefferson Davis. But the thing is, is that he was also campaigning to run for president or considering and uh, testing the waters to run for president at the same time. So a lot of his decisions were very politically influenced. And so it's not very reliable. And and historians have acknowledged that. And so... Unfortunately, it's not where we'd want it to be, you know, like a case very clearly saying, you know, hey, this is the standard for giving aid or comfort. But even as far as the word insurrection, but we do know that insurrection and sedition are synonymous with one another. And, you know, DOJ brought the first seditious conspiracy charge against Mm -hmm. uh, the head of the Oath Keepers. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. that is effectively DOJ saying that there was an insurrectionary conspiracy. And right now it's all about trying to, of course, tie that to individual one, you know, being Donald Trump. Sure. So interesting. Well, I'm going to, I just want to push back a glass half full here. I think that we don't have really robust case law on insurrection since the civil war is good because if we had that much case law, we'd be Somalia. Yeah. So (laughs) it sounds like your lawsuit is an opportunity. One assumes the Trump people would oppose it and then, you know, If you won, there'd be an appeal. And if it was a federal case, this goes up and becomes federal appellate law. And, you know, there's some things that until these guys showed up, we didn't know we really could use some more rules on and some more precedent case law on to go, nope, that's illegal. You can't do that. And if you try and murder Congress or something, you can't run the next election, Uh, you know, so kudos. Hey, what about people like Oli or Ted Cruz who might have been, you know, rooting along for the insurrection but, you know, weren't the actual beneficiaries of an insurrection? Could they get tied up in this if they're running for the presidency? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, this goes into the definition of aid or comfort, you know, mm-hmm. is uh, how liberal is the Supreme Court going to be with regard to that? You know, mm-hmm. it is a very important right, you know, to be able to run for president. But they're going to have to weigh that against, you know, again, what constitutes aid or comfort. The thing is that on the aid or comfort clause, that does have a little bit of precedent in case law. And the courts Hmm. have been very liberal with that. So even as going as far as giving words of affirmation are would be considered aid or comfort. The federal Mm. courts have held that. And so Trump coming on TV saying, you know, you're very special, you know, right after the insurrection, when he saw on live television what was happening and still, you know, sort of giving them that you're a special person and I love you. um, That is clear standard. You know, the way that uh, members of Congress reacted, you know, even now, you know, with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene saying, you know, oh, these are political prisoners, things like that. Mm. These are all, you know, words of encouragement, words uh, effectively ratifying their conduct and behavior. And so it's going to be very difficult for them to overcome that. But I would say over the next four to 10 years, we're going to see this develop in the courts. Because right now, the reason Republicans are obsessed with reclaiming the House is so they can shut down the January 6th committee, right? Because they think that if they shut it down now, that's it. You know, there's no statute of limitations on this. (laughs) So as soon as Democrats retake the House again and retake the Senate, any time they can basically uh, bring these commissions back, bring these investigations back and further use their subpoena power to dig more. 
So, so they could also not ratify the next elections, right? I mean, that's the, they could do the same thing they tried to do last year and just not ratify the count. Whatever it was. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get exactly. going because we're going to, you know, we, this is a great conversation. We're going to keep having little bits of this as we continue throughout the day. Uh, but there is so much good stuff here that uh, let's get into it. And then you'll be able to comment about some of the stuff we've been finding out as well. Up until now, just to catch you up a little bit here. We have reviewed in the last few weeks, three different things. Well, we started off with Ginny Thomas's text, which we looked at, you know, what are the role that she played in terms of supporting or encouraging the insurrection? These were texts you did to Mark Meadows. We also looked at the missing coal logs of uh, Donald Trump. There's seven and a half hours of missing data from the presidential call logs that no one really knows what happened to the data. No one really knows if he made calls from other places in the White House. We believe he might have been maybe in the bunker of the White House. And then we also looked at Mike Lee's, Lee's text, which also to Mark Meadows also seemed to be encouraging the insurrection, but also um, identifying him as one of the people involved in looking for these artificial or fake state uh, electors from each state. And that seems to be a critical thing. That There were sort of two tracks. There was a legal track, or what they thought would be a legal track, and an illegal track. Then the Maybe both would be illegal, but there was a track where they could, if they had these uh, official state electors, these false ones, they could present them as actual challenges to the actual state elect, slate of electors. And therefore, you know, the vice president could have chosen to suspend that vote on that day. And that would have been what they were trying to achieve, then go to martial law and what have you. The other track was to just have the vice president do it without these slate of electors, because he had a power anyhow, according to Donald Trump, at least. Do either of those actually true? Are, are both tracks legal tracks? So I wouldn't say legal, they're, yeah. they're theoretical. <laughs> yes. And, you know, <laughs> is it a possible construction and interpretation of the statute? Mm-hmm. You know, being uh, objective and being an attorney, the answer to that is yes. Uh, it is a possible reading and construction of the statute. Is it plausible, though? The answer is no. Uh, and there's a difference between possible and plausible. You know, uh, mm-hmm. possible means there's some reasonable chance, you know, maybe uh, five to 10 percent, you know. Um, but when the overwhelming legislative history and prevailing uh, legal authorities suggest otherwise, you know, that's where when it's something as sensitive as a national election, any reasonably prudent attorney would not support taking a legal position like that for a matter of national sensitivity and importance such as this. This is uh, both about getting a, an alternative slate of electors, but also the vice president having some sort of role. Both of those things are legal, but not, yeah. not plausible. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Legally possible, but definitely okay. not plausible. And given the weight of importance, I do support the uh, recommendation from a lot of state bars and the American Bar Association that these attorneys be disbarred and reprimanded for having advocated uh, such a uh, just just a reckless legal position again for something of national importance and and the reason that i walk a thin line on this is because law firms like mine and we're actually designing a, a tax software where we take unique and novel legal positions interpretations of the law right you know so mm-hmm. i'm used to reading the law and interpreting it in new ways that nobody has ever tried before and so i, I always commend attorneys for having the courage to do that mm-hmm. but to see that you're talking about small issues maybe 50 to 150,000 dollar dispute between a taxpayer and the internal revenue service right mm-hmm. you know not mm-hmm. huge national importance like an election that's already you know gone <laughs> 5 million votes in favor of the other person <laughs> and you're you're clearly trying to overturn the will of the people and that is to me where 
you know, you, you can't engage in, in that type of uh, behavior. For me, that's reckless. That's a really nuanced view. And I've, I've read the, the um, many of the pleadings from the Central District of California, uh, which handled because it was that's the location where Chapman University was, where John Eastman was teaching. So they got jurisdiction and there, you know, there were some pretty good arguments between the Eastman and the January 6th committee and the court. And when you say, yes, this is possible, we're not going to say it's impossible, but come on, get the, get the hell out of here. Um, you know, yeah, there's, yeah. you know, the judge actually is, is funny. The judge actually, is, you know, found in favor on a bunch of points uh, for privilege. They pretty generous to Eastman until it got to the crime fraud exception. And they're like, but now <laughs> you guys are crushed. So now like, it's like, could this have been a, could this have been for an upcoming um, litigation? Sure. I mean, you know, he, Trump's got a lot of attorneys, but maybe this is another one. I'm not going to say it's not, okay, you know, which might be a precedent you don't want to establish in that uh, circuit. That makes sense. Uh, was there work product? Well, I guess this was, if there could have been a lawsuit, then there, this could have been work product and give them that and then gave them, you know, well, there's other law professors who do cases and you Chapman University emails. I'll give you that. Also, you were overthrowing the government, so fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. A little detail. And right? I think those things are important because you don't want, you know, the look, I mean, this this should be a visceral, emotional thing for anybody paying attention to it, which is these guys tried to overthrow democracy. Yeah. But courts have a real responsibility, especially when they're establishing precedent on something novel. Somebody's taken a courageous step that you're talking about, and which attorneys generally don't like, or sorry, mediocre attorneys don't like. Um, <laughs> the you know the the crazy and the brilliant will do it. <laughs> um, you know, and the court needs to accept both. You know, okay, what do we got here? All right, yes, 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 nope, <laughs> but not just throw it out and get out of my courtroom. And you know, no, I'm banging all this. No, this is like we, you know, these are nuanced things. And and I think uh, it sounds like your lawsuit's going to help establish a higher level of jurisprudence around something that needs some more security. So that's really commendable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, one of the interesting things about the court case is um, it originally wasn't going to happen until November of 2023, right? When uh, New Hampshire filing season for presidential candidates opened, I would have to file. And then of course, I'd be there day one waiting for the door to open. But then, of course, we'd have to wait for Trump to file. And then at that point, we're both candidates and I can officially bring a lawsuit against him in state court. His attorneys would most likely move it to federal court. And then mm -hmm. whatever the decision was, they would likely want to go ahead and skip the appellate court and go straight for, you know, a writ of certiorari to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, I thought of a, a new novel theory. Um, so again, kind of think me thinking out of the box as an attorney. And I decided to bring a suit against the Federal Election Commission. And so that's the case that uh, is currently, well, I'll tell you right now, we had to withdraw the case. We're going to refile it in July because we had to supplant it with the FEC complaint, which now we did it correct. We forgot to get it notarized. That's my bad. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, one little thing. But yeah, we got it resubmitted. It's been acknowledged. I've made it publicly available, but it, it effectively incorporates the entire lawsuit, all the legal analysis. But what we're effectively telling the FEC is that if you accept Donald Trump's FEC Form 2 statement of candidacy, you're effectively acknowledging the legitimacy of his candidacy. And that contravenes Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Now, it's a new theory. 
they would yeah. say, oh, hey, we're accepting this, not as a determination of his eligibility, but just to you know monitor his finances as a candidate. So it, it's a new legal theory. But that one, I honestly give it about 50-50 because they have a good argument that they're not the arbiters of eligibility. They're only to oversee the finances. Um, but it, what it does is it, it's a shot across the bow of the Trump campaign, letting them know we're here. We're coming after you. You know, it's stunning too that you're talking, we're having this conversation. I can't believe we're actually having this conversation about whether Trump is going to be able to run again, never mind uh, that you have to sue him to get him off the, the ballot. But uh, there you go. That is where we are in America today. I want to go back to, uh, I think it was in September of 2020 that Donald Trump first used the Insurrection Act. It was right after those BLM protests were taking place. Mm. Um, and he was speaking to uh, Judge Piro, if she's really a judge, on Fox News. Let's take a listen to that clip and then we'll we'll come back and discuss whether that has any legal bearing on any of this. They say that they're going to threaten riots if they lose on election night, assuming we get a, 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 a winner on election night. What are you going to do? We'll put them down very quickly How if they do, do that? that. We have the right to do that. We have the power to do that if we want. Look, it's called insurrection. We just send in and we, we do it very easy. I mean, it's very easy. I'd rather not do that because there's no reason for it. But if we had to, we'd do that and put it down within minutes, within minutes. Uh, Minneapolis, they were having problems. We sent in the National Guard within a half an hour. That was the end of the problem. It all went away. Kenosha. Uh, you look at Kenosha, look at the problems they had. In fact, the sheriffs there, the police chief, they're all on my side, 100 percent. Law enforcement all over the country is on my side. So, um First time I heard it, the, the insurrection acting took coming out of the Trump circles was a little before that when Roger Stone was talking to Alec Jones, sort of towards the end of September. Um, but then this clip came up of uh, Pirro and Trump also talking about the insurrection act. Does that form some sort of premeditation? Does that sort of indicate that this was may maybe where they started planning? I mean, he's not talking specifically about the insurrection that happened on January the 6th, but it's close. I mean, what caught my attention the most was how he said they had the National Guard in there within 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. That to me was the most uh, telling because within 30 minutes, he was able to get the National Guard activated and they were boots on the ground. And yet that's not what we saw on January 6th. <laughs> we saw, you know, intentional, yeah, we saw intentional heel dragging. And I think it wasn't until it was being reported back to the White House that it wasn't really going anywhere and it wasn't uh, going kind of as planned that they went ahead and said, uh, you know, oh shit, we need to call this off and like, let's go ahead and put the National uh -huh. Guard in now. Um, yeah. But I think it's yeah. only on when they saw that it, their plan wasn't going as planned that uh, they decided to start kind of backpedaling. That's correct. It took, uh, you know, 187 minutes for the first call, the first order to get, um, well, there were various orders to send the National Guard in. The first one, the first request came at three o'clock when Mayor Bowser called in and said she'd like uh, the National Guard sent in. But it took until 4.35 until Miller actually gave the order. And then it took another 36 minutes to 5.08 before he actually gave them the order to deploy. I don't know what the different standings of all these different orders are, but it certainly is an indication to me that there's a long period of time. It's a lot longer than you'd expect the, the Capitol to be defended by the National Guard in an event like of this scale when you know there's an emergency going on. Exactly. Hold, hold exactly. on. There's there's another detail in there, which is the National Guard has the right to had the right to deploy without specific authorization if there was a you know an immediate threat to life or property. 
They changed they had had just the week before. They changed it a few days before. Right. It's just kind of telling. Um, and, and in fact, they didn't just change that. They changed the entire instructions. We'll go through it in a bit of everything the National Guard could even be wearing that day in terms of protective gear or anything that looked threatening uh-huh. or, or you name it. They were on that. So, again, does do all those things matter? Does that look like premeditation? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they were laying the foundation for this coup. The best that you can expect, uh, Mark Meadows and Trump and uh uh, all of them to lay it. But, uh, and again, I think uh, others in the judiciary and others in the legislative branches didn't start jumping in until it started looking like it might succeed. Then, of course, when it all fell apart, everybody started backpedaling and pretending that they had no knowledge and, you know, they had no idea. And all of a sudden, everyone has amnesia and has no recollection. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, but, but, uh, but yeah, there. Do I, not I think they were definitely planning it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Stuart Rhodes, who's the head of the insurrectionist Oath Keepers, really, also he's been, I think he's been indicted uh, in the seditious uh, conspiracy indictment, at least in one of them. He was, on December the 12th, is another time we heard him start talking about an insurrection publicly. And I want to play you this clip because I think it is very telling the way he is positioning this. This is December the 12th. To go seize all the files, all the databases, and he's to free Julian Assange and put him in charge of doing a data dump to display to all of you, all the skeletons out of the closet, into the streets. Wait. Show the world who the traitors are and then use the Insurrection Act to drop the hammer on them. Did he, hold on. He wanted to free Assange too? So he could, so the science could help them identify who they needed to throw, uh, uh, to drop the hammer on, you know. Man, he's <laughs> busy in that Ecuadorian. Was he even? He wasn't even the Ecuadorian embassy. He's like in, he, he's in jail in in the UK. He was in uh, at that point under custody of the. Well, not in custody. He was in. Um, he, but he was in the Ecuadorian embassy in London and hiding. No, no, no yeah. not on the 21st. Like he'd been taken out of there and I think he's just in a holding. Oh, now he's just, form. just recently, I think they just finally agreed that he should be, you know, moved here for courts uh, it's for like trial. So it's going to happen. Hold on on that because I'll get too excited. No, no, I had, when I saw it, it was like, oh, it's down to Pretty Patel, the, the home secretary. Now it's like, now they've gotten through the gate to the other charge to the, it'll be extradited unless the other judge is a whole, you can get this. Okay, so we got cool your jets on that. But the guy's a front for Russian intelligence, it looks like. And so in addition to Insurrection Act, I, I just I was not expecting a free Assange moment. No, I was not expecting Stuart Rhodes. I didn't realize he'd be part of this. He's, like, does he have internet access? And like, what's he been up to? You know, has he got internet point, access to jail in the UK? Yeah. That's kind of messed up. Yeah. Just yeah, curious. But apparently, uh, you know, Mr. Rhodes wants him uh, released to help figure out who the traders are. So that's uh, another damning little bit of evidence. It doesn't directly lead us to Trump's inner circle or to Trump directly. But Stuart Rhodes is, is pretty high up there and also, by the way, connected to the uh, the Rands, you know, uh, meaning Paul Rand. Rand Paul Rand and Paul. the Ron Paul. I'm going to go back mm-hmm. to sleep, I think, tonight. I don't know what's going on with my brain. But, you know, um, but he's he's associated with with that whole Ron Paul, Rand Paul uh, dynasty, if you like, and and worked for Ron Paul. So they might, mm-hmm. in fact, lead up to that one of, you know, to at least Rand Paul being another person who seems to have been potentially involved in supporting an insurrection. Oh, yeah. Yeah, nothing to look at. All right. One final little tape before we move on of this one is the kingpin of them all. Well, the kingpin of them all is probably Donald Trump. But the other one was Michael Flynn. This is him on Newsmax, the uh, right-wing TV station. And here he is on December the 17th talking about the Insurrection Act. Also order, he could order the, the um, in, within the swing states, if he wanted to, he could take 
military capabilities and he could place them in those states and basically rerun Ooh. an election in each of those states. I mean, it's not Ooh. unprecedented. I mean, these people out there talking about martial law, it's like it's something that we've never done. We've done, the martial law has been instituted 64, 64 times, Greg. So I'm not calling for that. We have a constitutional process. We clearly have a constitutional process. I think you highlighted some of that in, the, in, the, in your previous segment. That has to be followed. Yeah, so, wow. I'm not calling for it, but you know, but he could, he could, I'm not, but, that's my know, idea, but he could. This, happened, this is no big deal at all. It's like 64 <laughs> times. Like, don't you, I mean, you know, we just have the military break the act of posse comitatus and put shock tubes in the street. Don't you? I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's nuts, obviously. Yeah, okay. think, John? I mean, okay, how Mike. crazy is that? Oh no, it's, I mean, it's absolutely insane. One of the things that I had specifically called for, one things they could do is a lot of his a lot of things that he said publicly if he was still active duty he could be stripped of his military pension mm -hmm. that's how serious it is uh uniform code of military justice is very very harsh <laughs> yeah. i mean it would be as simple as biden reactivating him and then just bringing charges under UCMJ and then stripping him of his pension. Actually, yeah, because I'm super excited about this kind of stuff. Actually, there was a um, speaking of appellate law, the appeals court of the armed forces. Uh, forget if it was they affirmed the case or I think they affirmed the case about of it was a serviceman who was accused of rape in Japan. And their decision, which, you know, became a presidential case law, is like if you have a substantial relationship with the U.S. government. So not like you did four years in the army or eight years in the army, but a substantial amount, you still get a pension. You can be called back on criminal charges to be faced at the UCMJ. And that was the middle of 2021 when that appellate decision came down. So that means big trouble for, you know, Mike Flynn, for Stanley McChrystal, potentially. Doesn't Sean Spicer, was he was he a naval officer or something like that? Anyhow, if and certainly anybody who was at, you know, at the insurrection itself. And as yeah. you point out, Mr. Castro, actually, did you ever do uh, serve in the armed forces? Uh, it was six months at the uh, United States Military Academy prep school. So you I just mean, know that of, the UCMJ is not a tickle fight. That oh I've yeah, been told yeah. I mean, like your average day American doesn't know things like that. Uh, when you are in military service, you know, having extramarital affair, it can can land you in jail. You know, they'll uh -huh. literally put you in military prison for that. And uh, you know, I always find it hilarious when I tell my friends that are you know civilian their whole life. Uh, they always seem shocked by that, you know, and <laughs> it's just kind of like, well, yeah, like, you know, when you're wearing the United States Armed Forces uniform, you're held to a much, much higher standard as you should be. You know, you're representative right. of, of our nation and our republic. And if you're a three star general who ran an intelligence agency, we get even more finicky about stuff like yeah. not taking money from NSO group, Israeli spyware, not taking money from the Turks, not taking money from UAE, not going on dinners with Vladimir Putin and not trying to overthrow the government and murder Congress. I don't know. I could look it up. I mean, if you can't cheat on your wife in the UCMJ, I'm assuming trying to murder Congress, I'd have to look it up. 10 U.S. code something. But <laughs> anyhow, so what I was told from an attorney who had military experience, if you really did it, you want to be in civilian court. If you didn't do it, you want to be at a court martial because <laughs> it's just oh, yeah. cut dry. Fact, law, application, prison or front door. Well, so this is from military.com and it is entitled military retirees can be court martial after all appeals court decides. I take it back. It was earlier than that it was January 29th, 2020. 
In the latest turn of a dramatic and winding court saga, a naval appeals court has released a split decision, finding that a Navy retiree was properly court-martialed and convicted for a crime committed after he had left active duty. The en banc decision was published January 24th by the Navy Marine Corps Court of Criminal Appeals, with four judges agreeing with the final decision and three others dissenting. The matter's concern retired Chief Petty Officer Stephen Bagani, who pleaded guilty to attempted sexual assault and uh, attempted sexual abuse of a child in December 2017 after corresponding and making plans with a naval criminal and get an NCIS undercover agent pretending to be a 15-year-old girl. Uh, Bagani had already transferred to inactive status in the Fleet Reserve following 24 years on active duty at the time of the crime and appealed his conviction on the grounds that it was unconstitutional to court-martial active-duty retirees like him when retired reservists were not subject to court-martial. In an August 9th, 2019 decision described as a bombshell, uh, the NMCCA agreed with Bagani overturning his sentence of 18 months confining and a bad conduct charge. The victory, however, would be short-lived. In October, the appeals court withdrew its opinion, setting up conditions for reconsideration and an overturn, which came four months later. So... You know, I forget the steps that it took, and, and maybe you can answer this question. Uh, does the appeals court of the armed services, is there a Supreme Court of the armed services, or does that go to the regular Supreme Court to affirm that kind of a thing? Yeah, I believe that would go to the regular Supreme Court, which it has uh, in the past. So, yeah, it would definitely go to the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm just going to check if I bike. Can you guys hear me? You're back. Oh, no. Oh, you're, you're back. There you go. Uh, okay, so so I had what I was going to continue doing about some of this other stuff that we were. I was trying to lay out this timeline, so maybe we could jump back in here. It's a good place to start. December 12th, Stuart Rhodes, speaking at the Jericho March, calls up, calls up Julian Assange that he wants to be released to come up and drop uh, the hammer on all the traitors. We just heard that clip at the Jericho March. That's December the 12th. December the 17th, <laughs> Michael Flynn appears on Newsmax. That's a quote we just listened to 34 times. He says the martial law has been imposed. Why not do it again? Although he's not really calling for it. The next day, Michael Flynn, Sidney Powell, Lynn Wood join a bunch of state Republicans in a heated meeting with Donald Trump in the White House, where they're actually going over the whole martial law plan. And it's at this meeting where we think they gave the green light to go ahead and do whatever it is they were trying to do. But it included the martial law plan and it included the fake slate of electors. And then the next day after that, on the, in a tweet on December the 19th, Trump goes, uh, come to January the 6th because it will be wild to all his followers. So... There's a chain of events, John, that really feel is certainly talk about premeditation, but they also talk about conspiracy, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> the, the evidence is, is overwhelming. I mean, if this was any other scenario, uh, there'd already be an indictment. There'd already be, you know, they'd be gearing up a trial already. Uh, yeah. But, you know, it's just a. Uh, it makes sense. I respect Merrick Garland. I know that he is meticulous. He doesn't want to throw a punch unless he knows it's going to land a knockout. And I get that. But at the same time, you know, you can't get so paralyzed with wanting to be so precise that you never take the swing. You know what I mean? And so I think that that's the part. There has to be a point where, you know, you bring that charge against, you know, a person that's perceived as politically untouchable and just the weight and impact of, you know, bringing formal charges against a former president would be enough to scare other people to start flipping. But I think they're trying to get others to flip around him first, but you can't. They're all going to assert executive privilege and they all get their confidence and uh, their willingness to, you know, throw the finger to the DOJ from Trump. So if Trump says, hey, I got your back, don't worry about this. You don't abandon me. I don't abandon you. They're going to stand by him. And uh, I think that's 
the part that's not that Merrick Garland just is, it's not calculating in his brain right. is that uh, they're not going to flip. You need to bring charges directly against Trump and that'll get everybody around him to start flipping. Well, can I bring another another little detail point in here? Yeah. Um, may have slipped under the radar, but. Biden just put in his official, was it recommendation or um, he's choosing a new ATF director by the name of Steve Dettelbach, who has just interestingly enough, just gotten the, you know, an endorsement from all the prosecutors of the Oklahoma City bombing, which is interesting because you know who the attorney general is. Merrick Garland prosecuted Timothy McVeigh Mm. and that case depended heavily on ATF evidence and, you know, ATF is the principal agency behind investigating domestic terrorism. And there's been a lot of groups, a lot of cells that have had to be infiltrated. And a lot of that happened after January 6th, where these people were emboldened. They had just committed some of these acts that would get them in hot, you know, that proved that they were certainly amenable to this, even if they hadn't brought guns or hadn't used them that day. A lot of them met up at the January 6th event in Washington, D.C., and then went off with a bunch of FBI agents undercover and other confidential human sources reporting directly to the FBI to start planning their next set of attacks. And I think it's one of the reasons that Merrick Garland has not thrown the like the full knockout punches. You're not just taking out Trump. I mean, and you can say you got the lower tier guys and you've got the mob boss. You know, you could run this like a Rico prosecution. But this one's a little different because you've had the NRA and other groups who have been stoking this Second Amendment solutions. Mm. If we don't like what's going to go on, we're going to shoot our way out. And there's been a lot of cells that have been, you know, the terrorist cells a la Al Qaeda mm-hmm. that have been established in the United States. And it's funny, the Republicans have been vehemently opposed to Biden uh, putting in a director mm-hmm. at the ATF. How really? about that? that oh, yes, this whole time. And then just, I think yesterday, they appointed a new, I think it's the U.S. attorney for Arizona. I'm sorry, I've, I forgot him off the top of my head. He's moving to acting director. And the Senate's going to hear this Mr. Dettelbach's nomination. So I think that means they're ready to let her rip because in prosecutions, you know, if you have an acting whatever, the prosecution can be going along. The investigation can be going along. Often they don't want to file the charges until they have a full U.S. attorney, a full director of an agency, and then full speed ahead. So I saw that as a sentinel event that we're ready to take on the domestic terror issue in this country. Certainly about time. I mean, we're heading into another election that's around the corner. I wanted to take a look quickly at this other date, uh, November 9th. You know, there's a series of changes that happened um, mm, within mm, the mm, Pentagon, mm. within the Department of Defense, leading up to uh, the insurrection, which some people say is also significant. There was, you know, the leadership of the Department of Defense um, was sort of replaced with all these guys, people you've probably never heard of, or maybe you've heard of a couple of them, but, you know, Cash Patel being one that you've probably heard of, but General Tata, Douglas McGregor, Michael Ellis, and Ezra Cohen-Watnick, these are all people who are, you know, fringe, I would say, in the traditional DOD universe, but also people with some sort of foreign alignment in most cases. And just heading into the end of his term, Donald Trump decides to get rid of all the existing leadership at the DOD and replace it with these people. Now, I know that is a significant event for you, uh, Eric. You've been talking a lot about that. But then on top of that came this other event on November the 9th, when suddenly the Secretary of Defense was replaced from Esper to Miller, which at that point was a signal to a lot of people 
that something strange was about to happen. You don't do that right after the elections just because you do it right after the elections because you're wanting to do something in the remaining month of your term. So, you know, Eric, what, what are your thoughts on this? I know you've spoken a lot about this before, but what do you, when you look at this uh, chain of events and this wholesale changeover at the Pentagon, what does that mean to you? Well, it was probably clear that, you know, Mr. Esper was like, nope. <laughs> he caught wind of what these he, he heard he's heard some conversations like thank you i'll just go to regular jail over what's happened here i'm not going to be buried under the prison with you lot you know and remember even william barr didn't make it all the way through that like nope 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 and they went after jeffrey rosen he's like at the, the doj mm-hmm. he's like no thank you and they, they were even like the people they the- thought were going to say yes said no so they were yeah, down to like, the second tier yeah I mean, these were, it's funny when you read some of the, like the descriptions of the conversations, like with Pat Cipollone, you know, who is White House counsel and Pence's White House counsel, you know, these are not people who would seem very heroic to the average liberal, you know what I mean? And they are, you read the, the transcripts and some of them are from emails and some of this has come out of the Jan 6 committee already or into the news. I forget where I've read them, but they're like, this is insane. John Eastman is insane. It's like, and again, Mr. Castro here has like, has given given the due propers to a novel, you know, great advancements in jurisprudence is made from novel arguments and the courage to have them. And some things are just fucking insane. And you have to go, no, we're all going to die under a prison if you do this. So (laughs) the guys at the White House are like, I came this far, but we're, we're done here. And so I'd say offhand, you know, Esper, you know, either he's like, I, I, I know you're not doing yep. this. Okay, fine. We're going to get somebody who we have on camera with goats or something. We're going to get him and he will do this. That timeline, the December 17th, 18th, 19th. Hey, do you know when Charles Flynn got an extra star so he could move to a different office? December oh, 20th. 27th, 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 27th. And he yeah. was confirmed by a voice vote in the Senate. Isn't that interesting timing, guys? Yeah, they're so quick to confirm some people and others not so quick. <laughs> Which is so interesting. Mike Flynn's brother needs an extra star right now so he can be in a certain place in that office. It certainly appears that way. That's what it looks like to me. John, what do you think of all these different moves around the Pentagon in the weeks leading up to to the 6th? You know, it reminds me a lot of everything that happened before November 22nd, 1963. Too many coincidences. Mm. You know, it's too many. It's clear at this Mm. point that they're laying the foundation. They want to make sure that everything goes as planned. And yeah, I mean, thank God it it didn't work, you know, and thank God they were able to get members of Congress off the floor because I think uh, January 6th would have been an entirely different day. You know, it could have been been a weird hostage situation. Who knows what happened to Mike Pence if they drove him away in the limousine, probably would have never heard from him again. Mm Yeah, there's a lot of things that could have gone south real fast. But there is uh, a difference between just having an insurrection or rebellion against the government and having one from within the Pentagon, within the Department of Defense. I mean, that's a a whole different level of trying to take over the government. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, right now, I can tell you that right now they're trying to make it seem like, you know, oh, this was just a bunch of halfwits, right? You know, it's Trump, it's Meadows, you know, it's a few people who thought they could try to pull this off on their own. And they're trying to make it seem like they did all this. It was totally on their own. You know, uh, the lone nut theory, except it's just a group of nuts. Um, I don't I don't buy that. You know, there were people complicit in the federal judiciary mm. up into mm. and including, I think, the Supreme Court. And uh, 
You know, mm-hmm. it's, it, time will tell as far as, you know, the level of everyone's involvement and the punishments that they should face. I mean, we've never had anything approaching a coup from the inside in the United States. I mean, it's, it is a quite an aggressive move. I mean, something that we've never even contemplated that something like this would happen. I mean, that's a very, uh, you know, thoroughly treasonous, you would think. Uh, oh, yeah. I've got a statute. That comes from the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Mm. It's this is tenuous code chapter eight nine four mutiny or sedition. Mm-hmm. Any person subject to this chapter who one with intent to usurp or override lawful military authority refuses in concert with another person, blah blah blah, with the intent to cause the overthrow or destruction of lawful civil authority creates in concert with any other person, revolt, violence, or other disturbance that is against authority is guilty of sedition. Three, fails to do his utmost to prevent and suppress a mutiny or sedition being committed in his presence or fails to take all reasonable means to inform his superior commissioned officer or commanding officer of a mutiny or sedition, which he knows or has reason to believe is taking place, is guilty of a failure to suppress or report a mutiny or sedition. B, a person who is found guilty of attempted mutiny, mutiny, sedition, or failure to suppress or report a mutiny or sedition shall be punished by death. Yeah. It's very telling. So when you look at that timeline, then on the third, let's just pull this up again. So on the sixth, sorry, at three o'clock, Mayor Bowser is asking for additional resources. At 304, Miller gives the orders to begin planning the National Guard coming in. But then it's really only until 432 that he finally gives the order to deploy. I'll explain those 90 minutes in just a second. But between then, 319 Miller was told by Pelosi and Schumer that they needed the National Guard in, or at least was heard that that, that, that request mm-hmm. had come in. At 408, he'd heard from Pence directly saying he needed to clear the Capitol. Only at 417 did Trump release his go-home video. And then at 430 is when the actual order to deploy was given, he says, and then it was still 36 minutes until the actual order was deployed. So there was two, a series of different orders, but I guess he didn't actually tell, send them in until 5.08. All of this played out in Congress when Miller testified, and here's a clip of some of what went on that day. I had a meeting with President Trump on the 3rd of January concerning some international threats. And at the very end, he asked if there were any requests for National Guard support, and I informed him of Mayor Bowser's request. Mr. Miller, to be to clarify that point, did you tell the president about the mayor's request or did President Trump ask if there were requests? He asked if there were requests. What was the president's response to you with regard to the request made by Mayor Bowser? Fill it and do whatever was necessary to protect the uh, demonstrators uh, and uh, that were executing their constitutionally protected rights. Boy, that doesn't sound like the kind of order you'd want from the president of the United States in the middle of an insurrection. So it gets caught up in that a little bit. Uh, John, any thoughts on that? I mean, yeah. I mean, it's at that point, you know, you're trying to order the military to assist in the insurrection that's not going as you had hoped. <laughs> and he obviously didn't even follow I mean, those it, orders. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, it's I think to a certain extent, some people were manipulated, you know. But yeah, again, to suggest that nobody at DOD was, you know, complicit 
in the planning and uh, execution of this, I think is a, a ridiculous assertion. There was definitely some, yeah, there were some complicit actors in DOD for sure. So to Eric's point earlier on, you know, who, so, who does all this? Who? Oh, I was just going to say, well, so that the way that statute reads, which applies to anybody, you know, who's actively in the service or was actively in the service and still has a substantial relationship. Uh, what the precedent case law says is that that mutiny statute applies to you. And it's not just overthrowing the military order, but the civilian order. So not only are the people who were behind this you know, who served in uniform or had that substantial relationship, right? Not only are those people who are directly behind this possibly guilty of mutiny, which is punishable by death, but also the statute reads pretty clearly, if you saw something and you didn't say something and you didn't cover your ass with a memo and you didn't run this up the flagpole and you didn't tell someone to try and stop the unlawful overthrow of civilian authority, the Uniform Code of Military Justice isn't very forgiving. You know, what with that will kill you penalty yeah. that they have. So there's some people that, man, I'm glad that's not what I was up to on January 6th, 2021. Damn. <laughs> Yeah. Is anything going to be done on these guys? I mean, basically, if all we get is the commission from, you know, Congress, we're not going to get to see any other trials. You know, is anything going to get done here? Like, are, we, are these, you know, people who are overthrowing the government inside the Pentagon are not going to get to face any justice and neither are these plotters in the GOP? I think we're going to be seeing this for the next four to eight, possibly even 10 years. Uh, I think it's going to take a lot of time for it to come out. Mm -hmm. They also want, you know, emotions to settle on it. But I also know, you know, that the government cares a lot about, you know, public perception, you know, mm -hmm. and so they want to try to maintain the narrative that this was just a few bad actors, Trump and his inner circle, and let's try to hold them accountable. But I think they're really afraid of bringing charges against some of the head people because, you know, it starts connecting dots and showing that, you know, there are other people that are complicit in this. So. I think there's enough uh, people implicated that um, as sad as it is, I don't think they're going to be held accountable uh, criminally. I mean, you, if you play your cards right, it'll be so many people implicated by the time we get to the elections, uh, you, you might actually land up being the nominee, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that, it, that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's been thrown around as the, the dark horse, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I think that's why they're already grooming, uh, you know, DeSantis you know, to basically be, uh, you know, Trump's heir apparent, yeah. you know, uh, they're starting to coalesce around him because I think they know that, you know, people like me and others are very, very determined to not see Trump return to office. And, you know, people have said, you know, hey, DeSantis is basically Trump 2.0, except, you know, with a brain, he could have actually probably pulled off the coup. And I'm not too concerned with his policies and with his politics. You know, he showed a little bit of heavy handedness with the way that he approached some of the data scientists with regard to COVID and, you know, raiding that that woman's home and all. But, you know, we've yet to see whether he would do something like this insane, you know, as far as trying to overthrow, you know, a Democratic election. But, uh well, but my I mean, main goal well, is I making spend sure an hour that, challenging you on that, but I'm not going to right now because we're running out of time. But, um, <laughs> but you know, but, uh, but my main goal is stopping Trump. You yeah. know, if during the course of that process, people love my policies um, and they would love to see me run again, you know, either for president again or for a Senate position or whatever it may be, you know, uh, I'd be open to that in the future. But for now, my candidacy has one very clearly stated goal, and that's to ensure that Trump does not ever step foot into the White House again. That's a goal we can all agree on, I think. Is there any way that they can support you still? I mean, what should people do to, to get support your, your campaign? 
Well, I'm running an entirely self-financed campaign, Mm -hmm. you know, so I have had a lot of people reach out, you know, wanting to contribute. And I've said, no, please support, you know, uh, the midterm elections. That's where the money's needed right now. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm doing well. My company's growing. You know, I can self-finance this. And I'm probably going to put in about, you know, 25 to 50 million of my own money. And New Hampshire is going to be a very serious campaign. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm heading, I'm actually buying real estate out there next summer. It's going to serve as, you know, vacation home slash campaign headquarters. (laughs) And uh, I'm going to pump a lot of money into New Hampshire. I want to see how I can actually perform. But I do know right now it is the party of Trump. It is going to be difficult. But this can set, you know, my national brand. And, uh, you know, kind of like Nixon, you know, he ran a very unsuccessful campaign. uh, When was it in uh, 1960? Mm -hmm. You know, and then, you know, came back in 68 to win. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do this to get my name out there, you know, let people know who I am. You know, I'm a principled, compassionate conservative. We hope uh, we hope you know. that's where the comparisons end. Nixon's my role. Yeah, that is where the comparisons end. Yeah, it took me a while. That, uh, wait, what? <laughs> and, uh, um, but, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm from a native Vermonter, you know, whatever you want to do in New Hampshire, uh, you can't go wrong. And like, if you want to, you know, get place in Wink, Lake Winnipesaukee. That's a great idea. You're going to love it. So (laughs) none of this, all this is on the up and up. And if you can create some case law here, I'm not concerned about Trump not running again. I'm concerned that, you know, I think we got this principle of the last time we came to this kind of a a point of civil war uh, where we actually did it and had one that we had to go, wait, wait, wait. If you were on the other team last time, you can't be in charge Mm -hmm. of any anything yeah. this time and that's pretty reasonable um but, and, and luckily because we're not the uh, ex-yugoslavia and we're not somalia you know there haven't been that many there hasn't been a, a great you know there's not a lot of robust case law but here we had an insurrection and there's only been like three or four depending on how you want to count them and establishing some principles around that and not just you know a discussion but you know when you put this is the thing these courts can be very frustrating but when you put down you know no there was a case we made these arguments this lower court decided this and this higher court made this decision then you can have a more robust national discussion that informs the legislature the legislative branch that can you know maybe rewrite some statutes and those will then be dealt with by the executive branch it's almost like we have a pretty good system of government here (laughs) so which is why i really oppose murdering congress and uh, installing a dictator gonna end end it there um john tell us a little bit about where people could find you online yeah, so it's uh, johncastro.com, you know, and then uh, from there, you'll be able to find all my social media handles. I'm very active on Twitter. Previously wasn't, but now I've, I've learned to really uh, love it a lot. It's a yeah. quick way to get your word out and especially policy positions. Yeah, but, so uh, it's yeah. the battlefield. Yeah, it sure is the battlefield these days. Uh, and Eric Garland, uh, the podcast is Game Theory Today, but also you can find him on Twitter at Eric Garland. We have lots to discuss in the future episodes tomorrow night because today is Thursday. We'll be back with the after show. Uh, so we'll see you guys all then. Thank you, John. And thank you, Eric. Have a good night. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative. Narrative.